morning. It's good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here. Let's just jump right into this thing this morning, right? Get our wheel out here. Thought I'd give it a spin as we start today just to make sure that it is random for us. If you haven't been with us, that's on five right now. If you haven't been with us the past couple of weeks, we're doing something kind of different. Um, we've got a list here of passages that people suggested a couple of weeks so that they would like to study uh, together, and we've got to replace one this week. We've been spinning the wheel. There's 12 passages, and letting it pick, um, it pick. What we're really trusting is that God will show us what he wants us to study this morning together, and it is kind of fun, but the real purpose in it is that we could walk through together, like ground level, you know, step one, all of us together. Hey, this is how we approach any passage in the Bible to study, to hear from God, like with the hope that God would speak to our hearts and reveal himself to us and teach us, because the goal wouldn't just be that we'd come here once a week and somebody get up here and talk for a little while and we would listen and have a little more information and leave. The goal is that all of us would be equipped and able to encounter God in his word throughout every day of our life. And also that all of us would be equipped and able to help other people do that. That what we do during this time together, that all of us can do in our personal relationship with Jesus. And that all of us can do with the other people that Jesus brings into our life, that we can help them encounter him in his word. And so we're just trying to walk like from the very beginning. It's not me preparing something in advance. It's us praying, reading, studying together. And so last week we did Esther. We landed on number two. So let me erase Esther. Somebody want to add one? All right. You were ready to jump on it, weren't you? John 11.35. All right. Lose idea. I don't even know off the top of my head what John 11.35 is, but Jesus wept. All right. We did a... We could spend a lot of time on that, believe it or not. How many of you believe I could spend a lot of time on that? <laughs> um, I'm going to spend some time on it right now. So yesterday we played a basketball game, my older daughter, Sydney, and I help coach. I'm just like the assistant assistant coach, third one on the bench. And it's worth me addressing this from up here too. Like if, if you all ever are out in the community and you hear some kind of rumor along the lines of, hey, there's this guy that teaches on Sunday mornings at Friendship and sometimes on Saturdays at basketball games he loses his mind. That's not a rumor, and you can just say, yeah, that's our teaching pastor, and I believe it. Um, there's very few things in life, I, this is just me, that, that I like, get really excited about. Like, a few things fall in the category of, I really, really like this. I really care about this. I'm really excited about this. But if it's in that category, like, I really, really care about it. And then the stuff that's not, I just don't care at all. And most things, I just don't care at all. And, and you know, like, I get up here, and I'm, I care about this, um, and I'm excited about it, and a few other things in life are that way, but both basketball, growing up in eastern Kentucky, and then your daughter playing, I get excited about it, and I care. Anyway, um, it was a controversial game that came down to a controversial call at the very end, and we lost on a last-second shot that was heartbreaking for the girls, 
and they're crying after the game. And there's this moment where, in all seriousness, when something breaks your heart and it hurts, to be able to look at your child and say, God understands. He knows what it's like to cry. He knows what it's like to hurt. He knows what it's like to have something break his heart. And he's with you, and he cares, and he sees it, and he knows, and he can identify with you. He cares so much that when he could have stayed out of it, he came down and got in it for you to be with you, to sympathize with you, to have compassion on you. And whatever it is, as big as it may be, it may be Lazarus dying, your best friend's dead, or it may be that you just lost a nine-year-old girl's basketball game on a last-second shot, or it may be something in between. Jesus knows, and he cares, and you can go to him with that. Anybody, we're going to race John 11.35? I'm kidding. If we hit it, we may do John 11. Even though, who did John 11? Eric? Eric's with the kids this morning. We did John 11 a few months ago, but that doesn't mean we can't do it again. So, here we go. We got our 12. Emery, you want to come spin for us, sweetie? All right. See what we get today. again. It's John 11.35. All right. You've hit two, two weeks in a row. Here we go. John 11. Talk amongst yourselves for a minute if you want to. I can't believe that, Emery. I even spun it extra to start with. It was just meant to be. Let's just do all of John 11. There is so much good stuff in John 11. I'm going to put all of chapter 11 on there in case we need it. And then... uh, Scroll down below our notes there. We don't have to read it all to start with. We'll just have it there for context if we need to look at something. Let me make this. Uh-oh. Went too far. Big enough where you can see it. So let's do that. Make it white so you can see it better. Make the background back, background black. That's hard to say. And let's space it out a little bit. Where's the spacing? Down here? Nope. Try one more time. Come on. Keith, I really need Carol here now, like to tell a joke or something during this time. All right, we got it. Okay. 
So we're going to be in John 11. And when I talk about... Oh. Thanks. Christy told me that week one, and I listened for one week and forgot week two. That sounds about right for a husband, doesn't it? Um, When I talk about what we do together and what I hope that every single one of us can walk away with, that this would be like really helpful for you in your everyday life, that any time that you're coming to the Bible, when it's just you and God, or it's you and anybody else in any setting, in any part of the Bible, that we come and we say that we believe that this is a, an approach that's built on things that we see in the Bible together, that there's, there, there are truths and, and sort of kind of foundational concepts right here in this section that will help us better understand the Bible and hear God if we do this, and not just as like a a ritual or a routine, but really from our hearts believing these things. And so we come saying we need to depend on God, that this is not something we can do on our own. We need God to do it. And so we're going to pray in just a minute and ask him to do it. And then we need to focus on God, that this time first and foremost is about him, us looking to him, us listening to him, us needing him, us trusting him, and him speaking and him teaching by his spirit and doing the type of spiritual work in our hearts that only he can do. And so when we come and we read this, the very first question we're asking to help us focus on God is, what does this teach about God? Like, How is God revealing himself in this section of the Bible so that we can know him more and trust him more? What are things that we see about his character, his nature, the way that he works, the way that he acts, the way that he interacts with his people, who he is, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, just what's this teach about God? And then that we don't just want to know those things and be able to list them on a test, but we want our hearts to be changed by God and a spiritual encounter with God where he's working in our hearts and making us more like Jesus. And so we don't just stop with what's this teach about God. We start there as the foundation, and then we build on that by saying, okay, God, if that's who you are and these things are true about you, what do you want to say to my heart right now? How do you want to take these truths about you and apply them to my life and speak to my life and challenge me and comfort me and change me and work in me? And then we end with, if this is actually going to happen, we need grace from God, that we won't do it in our own ability or our own effort, that it has to be a supernatural spiritual work of God that he does by his grace and by his spirit. And so we pray again. We say, God, these things that you're showing us right now, will you please work them in us? And then will you help us Share them with other people. Bring people into our life. Give us opportunities to make disciples the way Jesus has called us to. For us to be followers of Jesus who are helping other people follow Jesus in the way that you're teaching us. So that's what we're going to do right now. If you'll pray with me, we'll start there and then we'll read John 11 together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time right now. Please teach us from your word by your spirit as only you can. Help us to see you and know you more because of the spiritual work that you do during this time. Father, help us to hear the truths about you that you want us to hear from this passage this morning. Help us and especially me to say the things that you want said and to not say the things that you don't want said. Just lead us during this time by your Spirit. Speak to us and teach us and work in, your, work in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. So what does this teach about God? John 11. We're going to start in verse 1 and we'll see how far we go. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. 
He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. Might as well finish it, hadn't we? When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. All right. Let's start with what's that teach us about God? That's great, yeah. Jesus is fully man and Jesus is fully God. We get to see Jesus' humanity right here in in the grief, in the weeping. And again, it is that reminder for us that he can identify with us. Hebrews 4 says that he sympathizes with us in our weakness because he's experienced the same weaknesses and the same temptations that we do just without sin, that he's endured it better, endured it longer, stood up underneath it longer than any of us have. Sometimes I think we, we get that part backwards. Like we think, yeah, yeah, okay, I know Jesus was human. He went through this stuff, but he's a lot stronger than me, so he doesn't know what it's like for me. And that's not how it works. Like if... Let's say that I had uh, two pieces of some kind of like metal up here, and we were going to test the strength of them. And on one of them, like we're trying to bend it somehow and, and snap it, and on one of them I put 100 pounds of pressure, and it snaps right then. And then this other one is a lot stronger, and we put 100 pounds of pressure, and it doesn't snap. And we put 500 pounds of pressure, and it doesn't snap. We put 1,000 pounds of pressure, and it doesn't snap. Would you say that because this piece of metal is stronger, that it doesn't understand the strain that the other one was under? Like Because it was stronger, it endured more. And and the way for all of us, the moment that we give in to our weakness, the moment we're broken by our weakness, the moment we give in to temptation and sin, that's the last moment that we understand what that battle's like. You only know what it's like until you give in. Jesus knows what, he knows how far you've gone, and he's gone farther. 
He knows how much you've endured, and he's endured more. He knows how much you've suffered, and he's suffered more. He knows how much you've hurt, and he's hurt more. And he doesn't get past it. This is the thing. He doesn't get past it with this arrogance and pride where he looks at you in a condescending way. And this would be what it was like if we just had a judge who didn't care about us. He doesn't get past it and say, see, I did it. Why can't you do it? That's not how he sees you. That's what's so beautiful about Hebrews 4 when it says that he identifies with you and he has compassion and he sympathizes. He gets past it and he looks back and he goes, I know what that's like. I know how hard it is. And I know that you're struggling and I know that you're just dust and I love you and I'm with you in it. And the strength that I have, this is what he promises you, I'll give it to you. I will come alongside you, and I will come inside you, and I will help you do what you couldn't do on your own. And when you fail and when you break, I know, I know what the strain is like. And I love you, and I'm there with you to pick you back up and put you back together. And so Jesus can identify with us and have compassion and sympathy for us because he's fully man. Like, he took on humanity. He really became a human. He knows what it's like. Completely and totally. It also means that he can identify with us in the sense that that this pattern that God has established all throughout the Bible where he says, look, my justice has to be satisfied. I I, I can't lie. This is God saying this. I'm just going to say to you, God can't lie. God can't not tell the truth. God can't pass a verdict on something. If it's sin, he has to say that's sin. If you're guilty, he has to say guilty. If it deserves to be punished, it has to be punished. That's what it means to be righteous and just and holy in his very nature. And so when he looks at us, he has to. He has to say, this is who you are. You've rebelled against me. You've wandered away from me. You've sinned against me, and you deserve to be judged for that. But he's established this pattern where he said, but there's also an element of justice where somebody else can pay the price. I'll accept a substitute. From the very beginning, even animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, this was God teaching and saying there can be a blood substitute, a blood sacrifice that stands in your place and takes your punishment for you, pays your price for you. And and God has said over and over and over that can happen. But none of those were perfect. None of those could really do it. The book of Hebrews tells us this too. They weren't enough to really cover the debt of sin. And so number one, because Jesus became fully human, he's the perfect substitute for a human. He can stand in the place for humans. And because he became fully human, he can pay the price for humans. When when he dies for human sin, it's a human dying for human sin, and justice is satisfied in that sense. But then on the other side, because Jesus is fully God, when he sympathizes with you in your weakness, when he has compassion on you in your weakness, he's still also stronger than you. He can offer you a hand that can lift you up. He can offer you strength that no human can offer you. He can come and live inside you and actually change your heart in a way that no one else can do. And then also when he dies for you, Yes, it's a human dying for you, an appropriate substitute, but it's also the only one whose death could be infinitely valuable because he's the son of God. He's God the son. It's a human, fully human dying for you, but it's also God dying for you. It's the most valuable death there could ever be. It's the death so valuable that it can cover all of your sin and all of my sin and all of everybody else's sin in the entire world, in all of history, who will believe in him. Like, it's enough for anyone who will believe. And so, like, just packed into this right here is everything you need to know about why Jesus can love you with mercy and sympathy and compassion and grace, because he's fully human. And then why Jesus can save you with 
power and grace and wisdom that satisfies the justice of God forever because he's fully God. And we see it here both in his humanity in grieving Lazarus' death and then also in his power to overcome death and bring him back to life. Like Nobody else can do that. What else? Do you have that already ready before you gave John 11.35 today? Like you had... <laughs> I'm just kidding. What else? You got that right. God's timing is not our timing. Yeah, everybody thinks, Jesus, you need to go now. And, and this is really interesting. You may have heard it when we were reading. They tell him, the one you love is sick. Like, hurry up, get here, heal him before he dies. Jesus makes this promise right off the bat. This is not going to end in death. Now, we all think, okay, he's not going to die. <laughs> That's not what he means, though. No, for, for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. I got, whatever happens here, this is how it's going to happen. And then John, the author of this, inserts this right here. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Like, he wants to make sure you realize that. That whatever Jesus does next is out of love. So, I mean, see the connection there. He specifically tells you Jesus loves them. So this is what he does. He waits. And he lets Lazarus die. It's awful. And they're grieving, and they don't understand. And they're hurting enough that when he shows up four days later, if you had been here. There's faith in that. There is faith in what they say there, right? There's, there's the faith of, we know you could have done something about this. And there's also the accusation. We know you could have done something about this. And you didn't. And we don't understand. But what you have to see with the whole story, what we get when we get to the end, is Jesus says, you wanted a healing. I wanted to give you a resurrection. Like, you wanted something good. But I intended to give you something great, and this is the only way to get there. But you know the only way you get a resurrection? There has to be death. It's just, I mean, resurrection is incredible. I, I don't know that there's anything better than something that is dead being brought back to life. But the only way you get to resurrection is through death. And so you see Jesus in his love basically saying, it's necessary for you that I let Lazarus die so that I can give you something even better than what you're asking for. You're asking for healing. I want to give you resurrection. And make sure you see why. Multiple times here he says, I want to give you resurrection so that you'll believe in me, so that you'll believe God sent me, and for God's glory. Like the, all the things that you need most, faith in Jesus, seeing who Jesus really is, believing who Jesus is, and seeing God's glory, all that is bigger than just Lazarus got healed. And Jesus says, so if he has to die and you have to grieve a death and it has to hurt, but then you get this out of that, listen, that is, the, I mean, almost the definition of redemption. Right? When everything goes wrong, and then Jesus comes in and takes everything that went wrong 
and the thing that he makes out of that is better than it could have been if it hadn't gone wrong? Like that is redemption. It couldn't, if Lazarus doesn't die, it can't be this good. <laughs> Do you see that? And there may be a million ways that God wants to apply that to your heart and your life and my life and our church. There may be a million things that you look at and you're like, man, this is a mess and this is broken and it just it looks so bad and so hopeless and I don't see how. And just, just know this. You're in the middle of the two days right now. He's waiting for a reason. Listen, I don't know the reason a lot of times. I don't know the reason in my own life a lot of times. I can't tell you that part. Until he does it and he tells you, you can't know. But I just know this. He loves you. He loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And he loves you. And his timing is for a reason. Even when you don't know. Even when you can't see it at all. Even when it looks like darkness and death. Darkness and death aren't too much for him. Because when he shows up and, and Martha's like, I know the resurrection's going to happen. Like she's talking about an event. And it's a big event, right? This is end of the world event that the Jews had this faith that God was going to raise all the righteous people back to life. And so she, she believes, she has faith. And Jesus says, let me help you believe a little more. There's not an event that's going to happen. I am the resurrection. He says, you're not looking for an event. You're looking for me. And I'm here. And I can do this right now. This is also this beautiful thing that he does sometimes when he reaches into the future. Because we know redemption's coming. Like, like full scale, everything made new. New heaven and new earth. No more death, crying, sickness, sadness, pain. Forever and ever in the presence of God. That kind of redemption's coming. And that's our ultimate hope. But there's also these moments where he reaches forward. It's like he grabs a little piece. He's like, here. Here's a little glimpse right now. He just peels back the curtain. I'm just going to show you. I'm going to give you a little gift right now. The first fruit. Just a little bit of taste right now of what's coming. And when those moments come, we thank him and we praise him. And we believe all the more that he's going to finish the whole thing someday. So yeah, God's timing is not our timing. And I think that it's okay to say when you're in the middle of that, that it's okay to come and be honest with Jesus. You see this with both sisters. He has no rebuke for them at all. Like both of them say, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And he basically just keeps saying, hey, I'm going to show you even more than you think. It's not, oh, okay, if that's your attitude, forget it. Let him stay in the grave. How many of you would be like that? But be honest. Like there, That is in me. It's in, like, yeah, you know what? I was going to do this for you, but forget if that's, if that's how it is, forget it. Just, again, just see his grace and his patience and his compassion and his willingness to help. It's not like he's like, if you believe enough, if you just, if you'll muster up enough faith, maybe I can pull this off. It's like they're just, they're barely there teetering on, do I believe or am I mad at you? He's like, that's fine. It's fine. It doesn't depend on you. It depends on him. What else? Hmm. God's compassion is deeper. than we can comprehend. Adam, you want to explain any what made you think of that? Yeah. So, 
Yeah. <laughs> That is really good. Help me say some of this out loud. Like if I if I get lost on my rabbit trails here in just a second, make sure I circle around and hit like fully what you're saying right there. And I know maybe mo most of you could hear him, but if you can't, I'll try to summarize. And then also if you're listening online, um, so Jesus here he tells them up front, I'm going to wake him up. Right? He already knows what he's going to do. I mean, he knows up here. This sickness will not end. In death. Like he's, he's telling from the very beginning, death will not be the end of this story. I'm going to wake him up. Now, they don't understand yet. They're like us. Listen, every time that you start to think, why don't the disciples get it? Because they're like us. You and I don't get it either. All right? But they don't get it right here. They think he's just asleep, so he tells them plainly, look, he's dead. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. And so, again, he's saying, look, it's good for you that he died because I'm about to do something that's going to help you believe more who I am. And so first of all, there is the compassion of, like, I'm going to take you through something that you're not asking for. I'm going to give you something you're not asking for because it's so good for you. Right? Like, with every single one of them, they, none of them have asked, Jesus, show us a resurrection. And, and it's like within him there is this grace of, I know that if I show you this, it will help you believe, and I want to help you believe. So there's that piece of the compassion. Also, I almost said this a minute ago with our last truth whenever I was rambling on about it, so let me point it out right here, that with all these things, when he waits, when his timing isn't our timing in this story, just see how that this point goes right back to the truths that we try to hammer all the time. We're like, the Bible's about God, you know, that truth, and then also that we've got to focus on God, ask what this teach about God. This whole story... If you were to summarize, why does Jesus do it? What's the answer? Right, to glorify God so that you will know who God is, so that you will know God's glory, so that you will know who Jesus is as God the Son, so that you know the Father sent him. Like he says it several different ways, so that you will believe in him. The whole purpose of the whole story is so that you'll know God. And do you know how much time we can spend in Bible studies talking about the Jewish burial preparation, the, 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 the rites and, the, and the, the, all the mourning and grieving rituals, and we'll spend like 87% of the time describing what would have gone on in the house during these four days. And it's not that none of that information matters at all, but that is not the main point of this story. You know, the, the absolute, utter main point of this story Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. That's why he did this, so they would know that and so that you would know that. Like This story is not about Lazarus being resurrected. This story is about Jesus being the resurrection. 
that you would see him that way. And it is utter compassion and mercy and grace and love that the one, the only one who is the greatest being in the universe, the only one who can give you everything you need, the only one who loves you completely and utterly without restraint and without limit, that that one, the most valuable one, says, I'm willing to help you know who I am. Because you need him more than anything, whether you realize it or not, whether you know that's your deepest need or not. It is. You need Jesus, and you need to know Jesus, and you need to trust Jesus, and you need to see absolutely as much of who Jesus is as you can possibly handle in your mind and heart. And he says, I'll give you all that. I'll give you more than you can handle. And it is compassion and grace when he does. So there's that piece of it. But then there's this other piece where he knows the whole time, I'm going to raise him. Like, I mean, you could say this isn't that big of a deal, <laughs> right? This is, this is a four-day nap. Most of you would like a four-day nap. I'd like a four-day nap. And listen, I'm bad. I am really bad about, hey, this isn't that big of a deal. Like, that, that is my knee-jerk reaction. Drives people crazy in my life sometimes, especially people that want to react to stuff, and I'm minimizing it. Like, I'm really bad about that. And Jesus, like if anybody could walk in, be like, not that big of a deal. It would be Jesus right here. But instead of doing that, what Adam was saying here is he enters into their moment of grief with them and grieves with them. Like he's compassionate enough to say, hey, I know what I'm about to do, and I know I told you, and I know you should believe me, and I, you should already know it's coming, but you don't, and that's okay. Because you can't see who I am yet. You're grieving, and so I'll grieve with you. And he has compassion on them right where they are, and he meets them where they are, and he keeps walking them one step at a time. He's so patient. Like even, even when like it's time, this is the moment, he's going to do it. And Martha, you know, Martha, type A, always worried about all the details, like she's thinking about the mess. She's like, it's going to stink. Don't move that stone. I mean, that's not the right answer when Jesus says, move the stone. But he doesn't look at her, and again, it's not fine, Martha. You know, I gave you a chance, and you got it wrong. I gave you another chance, and you got it wrong. Now I've given you another chance, you got it wrong. You're out. That's not what he does. He just reminds her again. You know, here she is in 39. It's going to stink. There's a bad odor. Jesus back to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? Now, I mean, there's a rebuke in that. There's no doubt about it. It's do what I said. Like, that, that's the Jesus version of do what I said. I told you to move that stone. Do what I said. But it's also still this compassionate, this caring rebuke. It's this, I'm going to get you to the place of seeing the glory of God. Let me remind you one more time. Let me remind you what I already told you. I told you I'm going to do something great here where you will see God's glory. Keep watching. I said, move the stone, move the stone. Do you think that him stinking? Here's the other, I love this. And listen, I think that you can take this as an illustration for everything in us spiritually. All the sin in your heart, all the mess in your life, all the stench that you've created with everything you've ever done wrong. Jesus doesn't say, bottle that up and hide it and keep it away from me. I don't care that he stinks. I'm about to fix it. And he's looking at you and he says, I don't care that your heart stinks. 
I'm going to fix it. Believe me. Believe me. I know you're dead. I know you're dead in your sins. I know you're dead inside. I know you're dead spiritually. I know you're rotten. And I will step into your stench. And I'll bring you back to life. He's not afraid of the stink. He's not afraid of the mess. He's not afraid of your brokenness. He's not repulsed by it. He's not stepping away from it. He's coming to it. He says, open it up. Like, let it all out and let me take care of all of it. Like, that's who he is. That's, that is the depth of his compassion. It's more. It, whatever you think it is, it's more than you could ever imagine. However much you think God loves you, it's more. However much grace you think God has for you, it is more. However much you think God is willing to forgive you, it's more. However much you think God can heal, it's more. However much you think God can redeem, it's more. It's always a better story than you could imagine when he does what he's going to do. And again, I'm not saying that like this time where it's not done yet, where the redemption hasn't happened... It's painful and it hurts and sometimes it's really dark and there's weeping and there's grief and I'm not trying to minimize that right now. It's actually the reality of how hard that part is. The the harder that is, the more glorious redemption is. The darker that black hole is, the more glorious the light is when he finally shines it. The, The deeper the pain, the more you can rejoice when he heals it. That, again, that's how redemption works. We saw it last week in Esther. It's one of the things I felt like I left a bunch of stuff on the table last week or after. I was like, man, I wish I said that, that, and that, and that. We didn't have time because we did a whole book last week and there was 10 chapters in it. But I felt like we didn't hit on the redemption that we see in Esther. That, that, that is set, if you were with us last week, you'll remember this, and if you weren't, this is just real quick. That is set when God's people were exiles. They had lost their land, lost their home, been carried off as slaves and prisoners of war. It's as bad as it can be. And out of that, God makes Esther the queen and then gives his people this legal standing to protect themselves against all their enemies all over the world. Like they come out, Esther comes out of, she was just a normal person, right, in Israel. And she goes from normal person to slave. So it's way worse. And then when God redeems it, he doesn't restore her back to normal person. It's queen. Right? And Mordecai, same thing. Normal person, slave, exile. And then he, he does, he's like an advisor, but he's about to get executed. And at the end of the, end of the book of Esther, it's, now Mordecai is elevated to the second most powerful person in the whole nation, only behind the king. Like he, God doesn't just restore what was lost. He goes beyond it. Better than, more than you could ever imagine. And that, that is the story over and over and over. Like he's not going to just restore the Garden of Eden. It's not just going to be perfect like it was there. It's going to be better. The new heaven and the new earth, somehow, and I have no idea how this works, but somehow the story that God is telling us is that redeemed creation redeemed relationship with God. There is an aspect to it. There's a depth to it. That there, there's just a, a substance to it that's even greater than perfect creation, than perfect original relationship with God. 
Like it's all that and more. And so we see that with Esther. The other thing that we see that we just talked about with Jesus walking into Lazarus' stench and saying, I'm willing, like I'm willing to embrace this and I'm willing to fix it, is also just don't forget that when we were in the book of Esther, they're all there for disobeying God. Like literally for a thousand years. A thousand years straight, God sends prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, and they ignore them, and they ignore them, and they ignore them, and they worship false gods, and they do everything God tells them not to do, and God will rescue them, and they'll turn away again. Rescue them, turn away again. Rescue them, turn away again. Like, they deserve to be in exile. And God comes and he says, you deserve to be here, but I'll protect you here, and I'll love you here, and I'll provide for you here, and I will redeem the mess you've made, and I'll make it better than it could have been when it's your fault that you're here. That's what he does. He redeems exiles. He restores prisoners. He resurrects dead people. That is who God is. What else? Chris said, God offers us ample proof of who Jesus is. That we might believe. And, and again, like you see it as Jesus says, like, here's the main reasons that I'm doing this. So that you'll believe and God will be glorified. Like, it's why this story happens. And I think it is, you know, if God would just say, I'm God and you ought to believe in me, that should be enough. But there's this grace from God where he says, I'm going to keep piling up evidence for you. I'm going to keep working all throughout history and I'm going to keep working in your life and I'm going to show myself to you over and over and over so that you might believe. There's also, and we could chase this for a while and I don't think this is the time to do it, but there's a piece here to what Chris is saying where sometimes we think that faith and reason are on opposite sides of our spiritual journey. And it's like, okay, for me to really believe and have faith, I can't think anymore. It can't be reason. Like I'm, I'm taking this blind leap into the dark. This is not a blind leap into the dark. Do you see that, first of all? Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you evidence of who I am. Now believe it. It's the very opposite of a blind leap into the dark. But also... C.S. Lewis deals with this some uh, in Mere Christianity. There's two chapters in there that are both just called faith. So it's really easy to find them. It's like faith and then faith again. And he talks about how faith and reason are almost never at odds with one another, actually. That it's faith and your emotions that are at odds with one another. So the first example he gives is, like, he said, what he says is, okay, there's things that I know that are true. Like, my reason tells me they're true, and I believe them, like I, I believe they're true, but there's a moment that comes where my emotions attack what I know is true. And he says that's the time when faith actually kicks in. When my emotions are trying to undermine my reason, will I still believe what I know is true instead of believing what I feel? Does that kind of make sense initially here? Now here's the explanation he gives, and I think when you hear this you're like, oh, I get it. He, so the one he gives is, so if you're going in for surgery, and you know that when they put that mask down and tell you to breathe in, that's not going to kill you, right? Like, it, it is something that they do every single day, and, and I know that people do die in surgery. What I'm saying is that when things go 
the way they normally do, they're able to do that. And so he, he uses, I know when they clap, the way he says it, but they clap that horrible mask over my face that I'm not going to die. The, the, the anesthesiologist knows what they're doing. He's like, so my, my reason tells me there's scientific and medical evidence that they're able to do this. But he's like, in that moment, though, my emotions kick in, and there's this fear, and there's this worry, and there's this doubt, and they're irrational fears. They're, they're not based on evidence. They're not based on statistics. They're not based on science. They're not based on medicine. It's just, this is how I feel in that moment. I'm scared to death. And if you were to give into that fear, you'd be like, no, I'm not having the surgery. Like, I'm not going to trust these doctors to do what needs to be done right now, and you wouldn't do it. But he points out, he's like, that's not your reason at work right there undermining your faith that's that's your fear that's your irrational thinking and he says the, the place of faith or the role of faith in that moment is to look at that fear and say no that's not true i'm still going to believe what i know is true like faith holds on to what you already know is true faith holds on to what you already believe when fear tries to undermine it do you hear the difference in those two and so this is a great example of jesus saying i'm going to show you again I'm going to prove to you who I am. I'm going to give you evidence of who I am. And then when the moments come, when the darkness comes, when you can't see, when, when the hardest thing in your life comes, and everything emotionally in you, all your fears, all your doubts, all your worry, all your anxiety, it wells up and it tempts you not to believe this. That's the moment. You don't choose between faith and reason. You choose between faith and fear. Will I believe my fears? Or will I believe what Jesus has already showed me is true? Will I believe what God has already told me? So God offers us ample proof of who Jesus is that we might believe. What else? Another truth about God? God knows his children. What part of the story made you say that? Yeah. Yeah. God knows his children. Like he knew what they needed in order to help them believe. Like Jesus from the beginning, in a sense, is saying, hey, if I give you a healing here, it won't be enough. <laughs> like I know what you need. You need a death and a resurrection. And so I'm going to give, I, he knows them. He knows what will help them believe. And he walks them through that. And even in the, when, when they don't understand why, like, why wouldn't you come quicker? Why would you let him die? We know that you loved him and we've seen you. Like that's the thing. We've seen you do all these things for all these, you've healed all these people. Why didn't you show up and heal him? They've got no idea why, but he knows because he knows them. He knows what their hearts need. And, and another way to see it right here is he had already shown them all kinds of healings, right? He had shown them enough healings that they could say, hey, if you showed up, you could have healed him. <laughs> but instead of that prompting the type of faith in them where they're like, okay, if you could have healed him, you can also resurrect him. They hadn't gotten there yet. Healings weren't enough to get them to believe that Jesus was the resurrection. And so Jesus is like, if I give you one more healing, you're still not going to get there. And you need to see this about me. So he says, so I'm not going to give you another healing. I'm going to give you a resurrection so you'll see I am the resurrection. He knows his children. He knows what we need. That's really good. What else? Anything else about God? 
Yeah. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He already knows. Jesus doesn't have to see Lazarus come out of the grave for Jesus to know that the Father is listening and going to answer. And of course, Jesus has a perfect relationship with the Father, not broken by sin. He says he's one with the Father. But I think you do see here this picture of that if you and I, every like just microscopic, teeny tiny step that we can take toward knowing God as Father, the way that Jesus does, to know the goodness of your Father, the love of your Father, both the willingness and the ability of your Father to hear you and answer you and give you good gifts, that, that every, like just the smallest step you can take toward really believing, God is my Father and He loves me. God is my Father and He's good. God is my Father and He will provide for me. God is my Father and He knows what I need before I even ask. God is my Father and He hears me and He's already answering before I've even said it out loud. Like the more that you can understand that, the way that Jesus does, the more that your faith will grow to really believe what God is offering you. Like, I think for me and for all of us, that it would revolutionize everything in our life if we could really begin to comprehend what it means for God to be our Father, what it means for God to love you. Like, it would change everything in your life. To just know, I, I know that you've heard me. I know that you're working. I know you're going to. And Jesus even says, like, I don't, I'm not even praying right now because you need to hear it or because I need to say it. This is for everybody else. <laughs> like he's still trying to help everybody else know who God is. In that, he said, I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. Like he's revealing his relationship with the Father for the sake of everybody else. And so I just, I want to, encourage you, you know, especially as you work through the Gospels and you see God the Son, Jesus, his relationship with God the Father, to reflect on that God by adoption has brought you into his family, that Jesus is your older brother, and the Father now loves you the way he loves the Son. The Father hears you and accepts you in Jesus the way that he hears and accepts Jesus. Like his arms are just as open to you as they are to Jesus. His love is just as poured out on you as it is on Jesus. His heart is just as turned toward you as it is toward Jesus. When you see Jesus' relationship with the Father, you don't see what our relationship with the Father is because we don't get it the way that Jesus gets it. We're the problem there. But when you see Jesus' relationship with the Father, you see what the Father is offering you. You see the willingness that the Father has to love you and to hold you and to provide for you and to care for you and to answer you. Like that is the way God the Father loves you. What else? Anything else? If we seek God... He will always be there because 
He's always with us. Even in the hard times. Yeah, like he, he's there whether you seek him or not. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't abandon you. The question is, are we going to sit here, head down, eyes closed, focused on us? Or are we going to turn to him and look to him? Are we going to sit here in the middle of the hardest time and just look at the hardest time and not see him because we're so focused on the hardest time? Or are we going to see, no, he's here with us. He's always there. And when you turn to him, when you seek him, when you look, he promises, if you seek me, you will find me. Every single time. He's never turned away from you. You can turn away from him. You can shut your eyes to him. You can ignore him. But he never turns away from you. And he's never gone. You you can turn your back, and he's right here. And you can take off running, and he's right behind you. He's always pursuing. He's always after you. And the moment you turn, no matter how far you go, the moment you turn around, he's there. And he loves you the way the Father loves his son. One more. Or any application that we haven't hit on. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So far, we've kind of focused on the Jesus wept from the like the micro and the personal, and that's really good. Where we've said, like, he sympathizes with and identifies with your grief, and he enters into it with you, and he has compassion on you on a personal. So, like, the people in this story, when they're grieving, he grieves with them. But I think there is also a macro level here where this is God looking at what he has made and saying, it's not supposed to be like this. Now, he, he didn't make it broken. He didn't make it with death. Like, death is not of him. Death is the absence of his life. Death is the twisting and the distorting and the destroying of what he made. And I think it is Jesus looking at what sin has brought into the world. Sin entered the world and death through sin. And he's looking at it and he's grieved over the death and the pain and the sadness and the separation that have come because of sin. And there is this bigger picture. And so it is it's both him looking at these people that he loves and, and, and grieving with them, but it's also him looking, I think, at his all of creation. He is life, and here's death, and it grieves him. But then it's also him saying, this thing, sin, that has messed up everything I made, watch me fix it. <laughs> watch me undo it. Like he, like he's bringing Lazarus back to life, but he's making this much bigger statement says, I am the resurrection. When Jesus does what Jesus does, he's making the whole thing the way it's supposed to be. And in one sense, the only reason that it's not what it's supposed to be right now is so that he can show you the greatness of his glory and grace when he takes everything that's not what it's supposed to be and he makes it what it's always supposed to have been. 
Like that moment is coming. And that's the moment that we cling to and we believe and we hope in when we're in the middle of the darkness and in the middle of the death. And again, like he, he, he reaches forward and he gives us these little glint. You know, the, the story of Lazarus, it's not the ultimate resurrection. But it's the, it's the echo. When we say that God keeps telling the same story over and over and over, and this is the echo or the shadow um, that, that, that's going to grow into the ultimate thing. But when we hear it now, we know, yeah, this is God's story. This is who God is. This is what God does. One more point of application. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, like if if we start to really see who Jesus is here and believe it, then when he speaks and we hear from him, it is life is so much simpler if we do what he says. You know, that we're the ones have you thought about this? Hey, Jesus, did you take this into consideration? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thought about all of it before you existed. <laughs> He's like, I said move the stone. I've got a reason for you to move the stone. You don't even have to understand. You know, and, so it is, and I think that is the beauty also of us coming to his word together and then us in our individual lives and saying, Jesus, speak right now. now help me hear what you're saying to my life right now so I know. Like, you know, it's, it, life gets simpler when we do what Jesus says. Are we listening to even hear what he's saying? Do you believe he wants to speak to you today? Do you believe he wants to speak to you tomorrow? Do you believe that when you sit down and pray and open up his word, that by his spirit, he's going to say things to you? Are you listening for the things that he says, and then when he speaks, are you willing to say, okay, that's him speaking. I believe him. That's him speaking. Here we go. That's him speaking. Move that stone. Let's see what happens. Let's end here as we, we're going to go into worship and sing two more songs together. Um, we're going to have people down here if you'd like to pray with somebody or come and pray on your own or you want to talk to somebody about something that God's saying to you this morning or if you want to take that very first step and say, hey, I don't think I've ever really believed who Jesus is. Like I've never come with this desperation of, yeah, there is sin and death and brokenness in my heart and in my life and Jesus is the only one who can fix it and Jesus is the only one who can give me life spiritually and I'm trusting him to do that. If you want to talk to somebody about that today, we'd love to talk with you about what it looks like to really trust and follow Jesus. But I just want to end here and just see who he is. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you know how great you have to be to make that claim? And it's not like he just says it and is like, believe it. He backs it up, right? He backs it up here, and then he backs it up when he comes back to life. So try to grasp how great that man is. And the I am, that is, if you go to Exodus 3, that is the divine name when God reveals himself to Moses. I am who I am. The translation that we get here when we come to the New Testament, the I am, is that like, Jesus, it, like, it's enough to say, I'm the resurrection and the life, but he's also saying, I am God. In John, actually, you've got seven I am statements 
throughout the book. This is one of them. But seven different times, that Jesus, I am this. I am this. You know, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of life. It's those statements. But then in John 8, you've got this one time where he looks at the Jews. They're already really mad at him. And he's like, I'm going to make you even madder right now. And he says, before Abraham was born, I am. And he just leaves it. They don't even stick anything on the end. Like, there's no doubt. And they know what he means. They try to stone him right there because they know he's saying, I am God. So think about who this is. I'm the resurrection and the life. Like he is the source of life itself. And then scroll down right here. These people that <laughs> all they care about is protecting their nation and their temple. <laughs> These religious people that have a building that they're fond of. And they love the building so much, they're like, don't you dare let Jesus get in the way of our building. <laughs> like, what if people start following Jesus and the Romans come and take away our building? How terrible would that be? I mean, notice they're not even saying, hey, Jesus didn't do this. Jesus didn't raise this guy. They know he did and they don't care. Like, they're so blind in their religion that they can't love who Jesus is even when he shows them. And so these people, that they want to kill him. You know, we get to the end, it's like, hey, they're trying, to, they're trying to find a way to arrest him. They want to kill him. But this, what are we going to do about this? He's performing these signs. If it goes on like this, everybody's going to believe him because, I mean, he is raising people from the dead. It makes sense if he raises people dead, you believe in him. But guess what? We're not going to believe in him because we love our nation and we love our building more than we love God. The Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then the high priest, the religious leader of all the religious leaders, <laughs> right? The guy who looks the best on the outside. And his heart's so rotten that he says, here's what we should do to this guy who's raising people from the dead. It'd be better if we killed him. That one man would die for the people than the whole nation perish. And even though he has a heart that's completely turned away from God in that moment, he can't get outside of God's purposes for his people. John tells us that was a prophecy. God spoke through this wretched man who wanted to kill the Son of God, and God was revealing exactly what was going to happen, that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not just for the Jewish nation, but for all the scattered children of God, all of everyone that God was going to gather back together and say, I adopt you and you're part of my family and I'm your father to bring them together and make them one. And so here's what I want you to see right here at the end. The one who is the resurrection and the life died for you. Can you even begin to comprehend that? How does the one who is life die. Like it's his very essence and he laid it down for you. How much does he love you? How much does he want you to know him and be part of his family? He's not just offering you a resurrection someday. He's not just offering you a happy reunion with all the loved ones who've already died. That, I mean, it will be a happy reunion. But he's offering you himself. He already offered you himself. He gave himself up for you. The one who is the resurrection and life died for you. That you would know him and you would know the love of God for you and you would know God as your father. Yeah. He died. Like his, that's what we said at the beginning. His death is sufficient for everyone. 
But this is the Son of God, infinite, eternal, unending, valuable, priceless, beyond measure. His, his death would be enough to cover a trillion more people than will ever live. And so anyone who will come, his death's enough for them. But his death only saves those who believe. Like over and over, I do this so that you'll believe. You'll believe. You have to believe. You have to believe that God sent me. You have to believe who he is. So just as we worship, this thought. Life died for you so that you can live. The one who is the resurrection died in your place so that you can be resurrected. Let's thank God for that right now, for who Jesus is, and let's worship together. Will you pray with me? Father, please help us see Jesus a little more right now. Work in our hearts so that we believe, that we believe exactly what you have shown us today. And please keep transforming us as your people, your family, your children, your church. Please keep transforming us into who you're calling us to be, into who you're making us to be in Jesus. Do this work in us, in our hearts, in this church. Do this work in our lives as we leave this place. Use us, Father. Help us show others who Jesus is and show others the love and the grace and the patience and the compassion and the mercy that you offer us in Jesus. Rescue us and use us to rescue others as only you can. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.